If you would now please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. I will be reading verses 33 through 50, and the sermon will be on verses 49 through 50. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is often viewed that uh, Christianity paves an easy road for believers. It is believed that the gospel, once it transforms us and it is applied to our lives, it will lead us to success or a better life that is a better life according to worldly standards. But as a matter of fact, Uh, The Christian life is plagued with difficulties and trials. We will go through the testing of our faith. Now to test his disciples' faith, uh, Jesus told them that they must be willing to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And what is included in taking up the cross is serving others and taking sin seriously. So serious that he warns that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that is, to fall away from Jesus, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck 
and you were thrown into the sea. And if any of your body parts, such as your hands, feet, or eyes, cause you to sin, that is, fall away from Jesus, because we know that all it takes is one sin that we harbor in our hearts that will eventually grow and lead us to fall away from Jesus, then we are to cut off our hands or feet or tear out our eyes. Uh, The cost of discipleship is demanding and challenging. He called his disciples to take extreme measures not to sin, because sin or falling away from Jesus leads to hell. Now while we are called to deal with our sin immediately, we are called to repent once sin has reared its ugly head, we are called to do whatever it takes not to sin again. But also, dealing with sin will take up our entire lives and will, it will take all that is in us to fight it. In this life, we go through a refining process. And this is what our passage teaches us today. <clears throat> when we come to this passage before us in the final two verses, it seems out of place. And it seems like Jesus completely changes the subject. At first glance, the last two verses of chapter 9 does not seem to fit. After he speaks of hell, which is an unquenchable fire, his mind was still on fire. So he says, speaking of fire, for everyone, that is, everyone who believes in me or everyone who has responded to the call to follow me, will be salted with fire. You're probably asking yourselves, what in the world does that mean? What does salt have to do with anything? In our day, we would not understand this phrase. It would be hard for us to understand. But in Jesus' day, the Jews would have been familiar with this expression. See, back in those days, salt was necessary for life. Uh, Many of us may be limited in our salt intake. Uh, Many of us may not be allowed uh, to add salt to our food. Uh, I know for myself, uh, I add salt to my food before I even taste it. And it seems like the women in my life are always trying to limit my salt intake. But that's a discussion for another day. Uh, But back then, salt was necessary. It was necessary in its three uses. It was used as a purifying agent or a cleansing agent. Secondly, it was necessary for adding flavor. And thirdly, it was necessary for preservation or preserving foods and other commodities. Let us consider the first reason it was necessary and try to apply it to ourselves today. In order to understand this passage, we must also understand the mind of Jesus and the minds of the listeners of his day and what they thought of when he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. See, this was sacrificial language. Their minds would have turned to Leviticus chapter 2, as we read earlier this morning. And I believe this is what Jesus was referencing when he says, we will be salted 
with fire. He was referring to the grain offerings. Grain offerings were given with either burnt or peace offerings for the purpose of praise or petition. It consisted in four elements. Fine flour, oil, frankincense, and salt. It says this, No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now the question is, why? Why salt? Well, since salt was a purifying agent or a cleansing agent, we all know that salt kills bacteria. This is why we are told to gargle with salt and water when we have a sore throat, for instance, uh, which I should have done this morning. Uh, (laughs) uh, This is what it would symbolize in the offering. It symbolized purity, cleanliness, It symbolized holiness. Uh, So this is another way of Jesus saying, count the cost of being a disciple. You must consider what you are truly. If you have responded to the call of following Christ, that as, as a Christian, you are to be a living sacrifice offered to God. And without the salt... The offering will be useless. Why? Because salt is a purifying agent. It cleanses and symbolizes making the offering holy. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing. Metaphorically speaking, salt cleanses. And it makes us holy. Now the question is, how does this take place in the Christian life? How are we salted? Well, all grain offerings are salted that burnt with fire, and it is totally consumed. And this is a picture or an illustration of the refining process that every Christian goes through in order to become effective and fruitful disciples. But here we're not salted with salt. He says we're salted with fire. Now this is not the same fire that is found in hell. But it is a purifying fire. Now this metaphor is found throughout the New Testament. Here and in other places such as 1 Corinthians 3. Now the Corinthians were in the same situation that the disciples were in when they were walking with Jesus. And the Corinthian church is the unfortunate mirror of most churches today. Every sin imaginable was going on in the church of Corinth. But specifically for the context of this passage, there was infighting over gifts, and there were divisions over who were they following. In other words, who was the greatest? 
So to settle their disputes, he speaks of how the worker is just a vessel for God, and it is God that gives the growth, and how all of our work will be tested. How? He says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, our faith and our work will be tested with fire to test whether Christ was the foundation and the day will come when it will be revealed whether or not we have responded to the call to give up our hand, feet, or eye for Christ. Now the good news is that we have a firm foundation. We have a solid rock that we are building upon. We have the head cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. He has not left us alone. He is here with us every step of the way. Yet, all along the way, we will be tested. Peter says something similar in regard to the testing of our faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for this end, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. For it has a purpose. It has a purpose. And that is that we may rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed because it means we have suffered with Christ and so that we would be purified with fire. And this would include cutting off those limbs that cause us to sin. The genuineness of our faith will be tested by fire. So in other words, it is tough to be a Christian in a fallen world. It is not easy. It's not just, just believe and everything will go right with you. And we would never think that our temptations, our sicknesses, our diseases, our troubles in our relationships, our troubles with our spouses, or our difficult relationships in our families or in our churches, will lead us to purity. We would never think that. We would never think of our hardships as a tool that God uses to purify us and to cleanse us because in the moment it doesn't feel all that holy 
I'm really being tested and I'm being pushed to my limits. But we ought to remember that all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All of these trials that we go through, whether it involves our own sin, maybe we're going through a certain bout with temptation so that we may be sympathetic with others when others fall into sin. Remember Christ suffered so that He would be a sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Whether it is problems with our health or problems with other people or even persecution for following Jesus Christ. They are all used by God to test and to purify the Christian by fire. It is the fire of testing. We would never think that persecution makes the church pure. Humanly speaking, think of the natural process of maturity. You think of children. In order for children to mature, they are put through various tests. And they will be asked to respond to their teachers and their parents and so forth. And we try to teach our children as they grow that they, after they are struck down by a difficult situation, whether it is their fault or not, we ought to learn what went wrong for the next time it happens again because it will happen again. We will be tested. Trials and testing always seem to pop up, doesn't it? And how we respond to that testing will demonstrate to others who we rely upon to get through it. So Jesus is calling us to give our hands, feet, and eyes over to God as burnt offerings, as Paul says to the Christians in Rome. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Later on in the letter, he answers how by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in other words, we are to be living sacrifices, salted with fire, testing what is pure. Also, the second reason why salt is necessary is because it adds flavor. Salt is good. It makes food taste better. I'm sorry if that makes you think of lunch. We're not there yet. We'll get there eventually. Uh, So it is... Not only a purifying agent, which symbolizes holiness, but it adds flavor. And the taste is also, now this may sound funny, but it is also to resemble the Lord. So we can say with the psalmist, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now what does that have to do with me? Well, look what he says right after. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But Jesus warns here, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, 
how will you make it salty again? Now that is an ironic question because scientifically salt cannot lose its saltiness. How can salt lose its saltiness? Well, we're not talking about the finished product uh, that we use at our tables that we know as iodized uh, table salt. He is thinking of the salt that comes naturally from the Dead Sea. After uh, the water is evaporated, the salt is collected, but it still needs to go through a uh, refining process in order to leach out and lift all of the impurities that come up with the salt. And if the salt isn't processed in the right way, and those impurities remain, it loses its taste. It becomes useless. So what he is saying here is that if the process of discipleship is not done properly and the conditions are not met, if you don't go through the trials, if you don't go through the testing, we will lose our saltiness and we will become useless for the kingdom. If we're not busy cutting off what causes us to sin, testing our faith, we will lose our saltiness. We will lose our flavor. In other words, we will lose our impact on others. We will fail to be a good witness to a good God. If we give in to our sinfulness and if we ignore the warnings of Jesus, if we ignore cutting what causes us to sin out of our lives, then the gospel will be hindered And we will have little impact on those around us, whether in the church or in our community. Salt is necessary because it is a source of life and health. It purifies and cleanses and it adds flavor and it makes life better. Christians are called to make other lives better. We're not here to make other lives worse off than they were. People can do that on their own. We do that on our own. And if you haven't noticed, our world is completely upside down. We have people who do not understand where life comes from and where life begins. We have boys and girls who do not know whether or not they're boys or girls, or men and women. And the Christian is the one who has the answer to that. We have the answer. We say there is a holy and just God who hates sin, who hates the destruction of life, who hates the distortion of nature. But on the flip side, he is also a God who is merciful a God who forgives in Jesus Christ. We have that message. That's in all of us. We carry that with us. But if we lose our saltiness, if we lose our flavor because we have ignored the high call of discipleship, 
If we decide to go along with the world and use our hands, feet, and eyes the way the world does, then we will lose our effectiveness and witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we are called to make other lives better, right? And this can be demonstrated in many ways. We, we are called to be good citizens, good neighbors, good doctors, good soldiers, good farmers. Because we are a witness to a good God. But let us not fall into the trap of trying to be relatable right, to the world and then fall into sin with the rest of the world. Some try to be relatable in the wrong ways and they go on living the same lifestyle and live no different than the rest of the world. And the excuse is, in order to win them, I must be like them. No, that's not what we're called to do. If we just go on and live like the rest of the world to fit in or to be like everyone else, then we will not be an effective witness to Jesus Christ. Christians are called to be different because the world needs salt and light. They don't need more tastelessness. That's another way of saying a lack of holiness. They don't need no more tastelessness and darkness. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and if the salt loses its saltiness, It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, no doubt, people will still seek to trample you under their feet. But at least you suffered for good as a Christian, rather than suffering for evil, which you already deserve. This brings me to the third and final reason why salt is necessary And it is because it is used as a preservative. Salt purifies, salt adds flavor, and salt preserves. It keeps things intact. It prevents food from spoiling, as an example. So since salt is a preservative and we are uh, to be salted, it is to be thought of in a few ways. It has been taught to us in a few ways. Uh, But there is one specific way that Jesus uses it here. But let us consider first. If we are to be salted, it would mean that Christians will not be destroyed by those trials and temptations that we go through. We will be kept intact for the day of Jesus Christ and we will be found blameless On that day. Uh, Secondly, and probably the most common way it is used, is when we think of Christians being the salt of the earth. Uh, We think of being the uh, preserving influence in the world. Uh, We think of Christians working out in the world to keep the world safe and intact. And, And this is true. The world needs salt. Our bodies need salt. So as a picture... The reason that the world is still in existence is because of the salted people of God are still present here. 
We are a witness to God's goodness and mercy in the world to the gospel as we proclaim it and as we live in light of it until he returns. But if we have lost our saltiness, then it is no good, neither for flavor nor for preserving anything, especially our world. This is all true, and there is no denying it. But here, Jesus doesn't just address our personal walk and our relationship to the world, but also our relationship with other Christians. Our relation to the church. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Uh, He's not saying become salty like the modern day slang for becoming bitter. Right, not sure if you're familiar with that. In fact, he is saying the exact opposite. See, the language of salt is not just sacrificial language like we find in uh, Leviticus chapter 2. But it is also referring to the covenant. It is also covenantal language. Especially when you consider salt as a preservative. The salt that was used for the grain offering wasn't preserving much of anything after it was burnt up. right? So it wasn't preserving anything. That symbolized holiness and purity. But there is a covenant that is seldom mentioned in the Old Testament. And it is the covenant of salt. The covenant of salt. It is only mentioned twice. Numbers 18, where God promised Aaron and the Levites that he would be their portion forever. And the other is in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. Speaking of the Lord giving kingship over to Israel to David, over Israel to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. This means it will be preserved and intact forever. Now, this may sound like a stretch, but salt as a preservative symbolizes unity and peace. So, a covenant of salt is to say that there is peace between God and man, and it is intact, preserved forever. It is a covenant of peace. And we find this ultimately expressed in our Lord Jesus Christ as he has fulfilled the ultimate covenant of salt. And I use quotations. We're not going to use that often. Um, It is a covenant of salt in the sense that he has made peace between God and man by dying on the cross and that covenant will be preserved forever. And God has now become our portion forever. This is what we call the gospel. This is the good news that there is everlasting peace between God and man through Jesus Christ. And one of the effects that this gospel has in the church is that there will be peace not only between God and man, but also among brothers and sisters. Because the gospel unites us. The gospel unites us. That's why he says... Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Why? 
Because how does the world see Jesus in the church? He says this, as it was recorded by John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what is essential to love is peace. Peace. When unbelievers who do not have peace look at the church, what will be her witness? Will we be infighting? Will we resemble the world that has no peace? When we are so preoccupied with those things that are unrelated to the gospel of our Lord, and when we are fighting with one another over lesser issues, we lose the opportunity to be effective witnesses of Jesus Christ. But peace was what the disciples were missing. That is what most of us are missing on a day-to-day basis. He was dealing with a rough group who wasn't too peaceful. They were uh, all messed up on many different levels. Uh, You had James and John. They were called the sons of thunder. That alone doesn't sound too peaceful. You have Peter who is overly zealous at times and when Jesus was uh, to be arrested, he, he drew a sword and cut off the high priest's servant, uh, Malchus's ear. You have Thomas, who questioned everything and doubted Jesus' resurrection. You have Nathaniel, who was overly honest and could probably learn some self-control with his tongue. We can go on and on. And in the current context, that lack of peace turned inward toward the disciples. He just finished addressing their pride and envy, which led to their divisiveness and indifference toward other believers. They were completely divided among themselves at this point. What kind of witness were the disciples when they were arguing over who was the greatest or when they dismissed another believer? And when we look at ourselves in the church today, Can we say we have peace among ourselves? That is the great challenge for all of us. What he is warning us about is that all of these sins cause us to lose our saltiness. Causes us to lose our saltiness. We are called to be different than the rest of the world as they fight and divide among themselves because we are called by a different name. If you wonder whether or not you have been salted, ask yourself, how are your relationships doing in the church? Good salt produces peaceful relationships. And we are called to become a community of peace where disputes are quickly settled. Like uh, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, you're to judge the world, but how are you going to judge the world if you can't settle simple disputes? And sometimes it begins by forgiving the sinner at the altar before they even repent for the sins they have committed against you. Because nothing is a more powerful witness to the world than to see Christians at peace with one another. The world is always fighting. 
They're always in disarray. We know that there's always a war being fought. Whether in ourselves, in our thoughts, in our minds. And this doesn't mean that we all become pushovers. This doesn't mean we settle with false teaching in the church. But as Paul says to the Colossians, let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt. There it is again. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Because we are to reflect the peace of God. The peace that he has given us. So he has been saying we are not only to be a living sacrifice for God. But we are also responsible to one another. Which will require hand, foot, eye and all of our members offered with salt. Because salt purifies, it adds flavor, and preserves unity and peace in the church. So like he says, have salt in yourselves. So have you counted the cost of being a Christian disciple? Or are you being indifferent or casual towards sin? Are we being indifferent or careless toward other Christians? Is there salt in us? We know we can't do this on our own. So we are to remember Christ as He is our foundation and how He has fulfilled the ultimate covenant of salt, which brings peace to men and God, and God has become our portion forever. The key to peace is found only in Christ. And he and his father seek to make a home in those who love him so that we may bear the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Amen. Let us pray.